0: And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela.
1: The trail that's traveled this afternoon is being recorded in the Middle Atlas Mountains in the kingdom of Morocco. We're currently driving in a 17-passenger van, uh, which is starting to slowly climb the Middle Atlas from an area called Wawazaki. Our destination is the Alhansel River, where we're going to do a four-day whitewater rafting expedition, and with me on that trip is my guest today, Joe Medima. So just to paint the picture for you if you're listening and you don't really have an idea of where we are, we are literally sitting in a pretty packed van, pulling a trailer full of whitewater gear. Uh, next to me is fresh bread from the markets and gin and tonic for later tonight, a bunch of watershed dry bags and a berber blanket as well joe is originally from brampton ontario and now he lives in a rural setting in ontario joe Medima is a bushcrafter and subsistence hunter bushcrafting is the art of surviving in the bush first of all joe thank you so much for joining us on this expedition and making the time and energy to speak with me on this drive to the river today
0: thank you very much yeah, so my journey, I guess, started a long, long time ago. I'm not that old, I don't think. I'm kind of 50-ish. My parents immigrated from Holland to Canada. My father in 1948 and my mother in 1951. They settled with my father's entire side of the family. So all my first cousins, all my aunts and uncles and my grandparents, we all lived in one big old ramshackle brick farmhouse on a small chicken farm, and we were chicken farmers. I wouldn't say it was subsistence, but it was almost subsistence, it was pretty hand to mouth. We, we grew all our own vegetables. We didn't have running water till, I didn't have running water till 1986. So like, that's not that long ago in the big picture. When you think of North America, it's particularly Canada as like a G7 country. So growing up on the farm, That honed a lot of skills, but not really bushcrafting and hunting, but it did hone skills. My parents, though, really had nothing to do with bushcrafting, the outdoors, camping, fishing, hunting, none of that. There was none of that in my family history whatsoever. So pretty well everything I learned, I self-taught. But my oldest memory actually goes back to when I was four years old, and we were at the fall fair which is a little bit like a bit of a rural harvest festival. But they got some cheesy rides for kids and games and stuff. And there was this stupid little fishing game where they got some water circulating in a trough with some plastic fish with magnets on them and they give you a cheesy little fishing rod with a magnet on the end and you gotta catch one of these fish. So my parents paid for me to play this game and I won a prize, caught my fish, but afterwards I did not want to surrender the fishing rod I knew at that point that this is what I want I want to do something like this and you're not taking this fishing rod from me so we had to leave like I threw a tantrum a four-year-old tantrum we had to leave the fair but my parents pretty quickly thereafter bought me a cheap fishing rod from Canadian Tire was the place they would have bought it at that's Back in the day, that was the only place to get outdoor gear of that sort. And then I would make a trek every summer on my mom's side. So I grew up with my entire dad's side of the family, 28 cousins, 11 aunts and uncles, and my grandparents. We all lived in one house. But annually, I would go up to a farm on my mother's side, a different farm. Uh, and that this was her sister's farm. And they, were, they actually farmed reindeer. And they had property along the Sobel River which good trout and bass fishing so I would go up and I would fish to my heart's content there. I had an older cousin who I idolized at the time on my mom's side so he really taught me how to fish also taught me a little bit about hunting a little bit not much you know but from there he taught me how to shoot again. Then growing up on the farm once I got a little bit older my parents would let me roam a little bit further on my own I saved up all my allowance and every scrap of penny I ever earned was put into one of two things. It was put into fishing gear or I would buy books and magazines about fishing and hunting. Now, i just read every word page to page on everything and I would just suck up every bit of information I could. But I was starting out, I had a decent secondhand bicycle and a knapsack and I threw all my gear on my back and i just ride around the countryside and I would knock on doors. Anywhere where I saw water, I would, as a like 10-year-old kid, ride up to the front door of the farmhouse and knock on the door and ask permission to fish their pond or creek or whatever, you know, and just, yeah, just travel around that way. I got pretty good at fishing by the time I was in high school, you know, I was catching keepers by then and putting food in the freezer not not enough to survive or anything, but pretty decent for a kid running junky gear from Canadian tire. During high school I had maybe one or two teachers who were into backpacking. Not so much fishing or hunting, but into the bushcrafting, like the you know, shelter building and uh, you know, building a fire from scratch and that sort of stuff. You know, getting your water, you know, where to put your shelter, that sort of deal. So I got mentored by these two guys and i I learned some stuff from them as well we would go on like weekend backpacking trips through the school and it wasn't just me they were uh, there was a club it's called the bruce trail club which is a four or five hundred mile long trail in ontario that you can hike and backpack and camp on so that's where i started picking up more of the bushcrafting skills along the way and then i went to university and Kind of a lot of that stuff fell off the radar for a few years in university, other than what I call car camping. And car camping is—if you can drive there with a car—it's car camping, right? And it doesn't it doesn't really count in my mind. That's just kind of that's when you can't afford a hotel, you car camp, right? So uh, yeah. But that was more the university scene because it was—it's a lot of work to try to portage in a ton of booze and food and whatever else, but. Actually, there was one summer between high school and university. My summer job was, I worked for the Ministry of Natural Resources in Ontario as a canoe ranger, it was called. And back when the province had some more money than they do now, they used to maintain canoe routes through northern Ontario, like into the Hudson Bay Arctic uh, Basin drainage, which is very remote. Like, you can get three, 400 kilometres from the nearest road. Uh, on some of those rivers quite easily. So in my job, we would get dropped at the put-in with a crew of four, so two in each canoe. These were 18-foot Grumman freighters, the big canoes, heavy, awkward beasts. But with a lot of gear, and our job was we would paddle the whole route, not at any kind of great rate of speed, but we had with us, you know, axes, machetes, sandviks even a chainsaw and five gallons of gas for stuff that was really tough and our job was to repair all the portages on any specific route. Some of these routes would take two or three weeks at a stretch and well there is still no cell phone stuff up there but this is before sat phones. So like I was a 17 year old kid on Wednesday afternoons we get a flyby. We had a handheld radio that had about a 10 or 12 mile radius. They would follow the river course either with a float plane or a helicopter trying to contact us by radio and we knew what time of day to have the radio on. So like Wednesday afternoons we would have the radio on and that would be our one check in per week and they would just for about 10 minutes you'd have radio contact with the world and it would be hey everything okay down there? Yeah we're okay. Okay see you next Wednesday kind of thing. We'll talk next Wednesday. And if we needed something like oh no you know we need you know, we lost some of the tools we dumped, and can you can you airdrop? You know, we need a couple of axes, we need a, a buck saw, whatever. So I learned a lot doing that, and I saw a lot of wildlife, because when you're canoeing, actually, it's a good way to sneak up on things. It's a very silent mode of transport, unlike trampling through the bush. You could see a lot in the canoe, but even when you're camped at night, when it's quiet in those quiet hours before sunrise and sunset you see and hear a lot so that was a year before I went to university then I got into university did my engineering degree I got married while we were in university and started having kids and you know kind of the busyness of life catches up with you and you don't have time for a lot of that stuff anymore but you know then my kids got a little older and started to be able to do some things again It's the only seven years of my life I ever lived in a town was uh, right after university. Other than that, I've lived kind of rural or in the bush my entire life, either on a farm or, you know, in the bush, whatever. If
2: you're just joining us, we're on the trail less traveled in the Middle Atlas Mountains in Morocco, slight incline with a group of 20 or so people in a bus on the way to a river expedition for the next four days. We're talking to Joe Miedema.
0: Once my kids were a little bit older, I decided I got to get back into this and took up bow hunting first. Oh, I just thought, you know, like rifle hunting just sounded too easy. I, I had hunted before, but i have primarily been fishing and bushcrafting up to that point. Hadn't really gotten into the putting, you know, like hardcore meat in the freezer and, you know, not not buying meat so to speak, so it was all self-taught, but when I do anything, it's like 110 miles an hour and I, I picked it up really fast like, my brother-in-law was just flabbergasted, the very first year I hunted, I I put about 600 pounds of meat in the freezer other than the odd exception because really like smoked baby back pork ribs are really hard to beat, so we do We I, I can't say we never buy red meat <laughs> But once in a blue moon, we'll buy bacon and drips. But other than that, we essentially have not bought meat in a long, long time. Red meat, anyways. It's pretty hard to put enough white meat in the freezer. So we do buy some chicken and fish occasionally, because it's pretty hard to put enough birds and fish in the freezer. So so I started bow hunting. The first big game animal I ever took was in my backyard about 60 yards from the house so I brushed in a little blind and started calling because the rut was on it's technically the easiest time to hunt deer is when they're rutting because they're the bucks are pretty stupid in that two-week period first animal I took was about 60 yards from the house and it was a big eight-point white-tailed deer and I set up a little natural blind and I started calling, and when I say calling, I was pretending to be a female deer in heat. And I was inviting the males to come mate with me, right? So I had a big, big buck come in. He would have been about 270 pounds, 8, eight points, big, wide spread on the antlers, a lot of mass. And when I say mass and I'm talking about antlers, that's kind of the the diameter of the antlers and the diameter of the points, when you say that those antlers have a lot of mass, you were kind of referring to the thickness of the main beams on the antlers. This guy had a lot of mass, eight big points, big spread, and uh, I was pretty excited. And you get something called buck fever, particularly when when animals like this come in and you're after them. You 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 basically start to vibrate. It's called buck fever, and it can actually st- it's the reason for more missed shots than any other single factor is, is the buck fever that strikes when the animal comes in and your adrenaline starts going, and you're you're trying to get this guy close enough. Because with a bow, depending on the style of bow, you generally have to get it closer than 30 yards from you. At 20 yards is better, and 10 yards is best. 10 yards is a gimme. 20 yards, you should be able to do it. And 30 yards is getting pushing the envelope. That's if you're hunting with a compound bow. If you're hunting with a traditional bow, like a an older style English longbow or a recurve bow that doesn't have any, we call them cams, you have to get the deer to within about 10-12 yards, actually, to be successful. Um, if you're hunting with a crossbow, and I'll admit I do use a crossbow sometimes, just uh, in bad weather, because you don't have to hold the draw, so if it's like minus 25 out... It's a lot easier to bow hunt with a crossbow than it is a, a bow where you gotta hold the string. So, I had this serious case of buck fever and I let the arrow fly and it did not hit at all where I was supposed to, where I was aiming and where I knew the arrow had to go. You wanna aim for the vital organs on an animal like that, which is essentially, you want the animal to be broadside, you wanna put the arrow in just behind and below its shoulder, and you want it to go through both lungs so that it essentially collapses both lungs instantly and it will bleed out inside six seconds it'll be unconscious it won't be dead but the blood pressure will drop so fast so quickly the animal will be unconscious in five or six seconds after that arrow passes through that's the shot you want to make and that's what I was trying to do but because of the buck fever it didn't come close fortunately for me that arrow hit it at the base of the skull in the spine and broke its neck and killed it instantly. But that's not what you should ever try to do. That's a bad shot to try and take. It's a very small target. It was just fluky that I happened to do that. So that was my very first big game animal and it was in my backyard.
1: If you're just joining us, you are on the Trail Less Traveled, which is being recorded, as you can probably hear in the background, in a bus that is climbing the Middle Atlas Mountains of Morocco as we speak, as we record. The bus is full of the guests who are going on a whitewater rafting expedition with me and seven other guides. And we're heading to the Alhansal River right now. We're speaking with Joe Madima. He's originally from Brampton, Ontario, and he currently lives in a rural setting in Ontario. Joe is a bushcrafter and subsistence hunter. To be a bushcrafter is to embrace the art of surviving in the bush. When we come back, we're going to learn more about surviving in the bush and some of the lessons he's learned along the way. But now, Joe, it's time for a song. So could you please
0: share a song with us that reminds you of your early childhood adventures? Okay, that will be uh, Cat Stevens and Wild World. It just, it is a wild world out there. And, uh, I love it. That's what I love about the world, the wild world. And I, if I could never go back to civilization ever again, I'd be quite happy with that. So that, that's my choice of song.
3: Good day, mate. This is Joe, coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in eastern Australia. The Trail Less Traveled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp. Family farmed, organically grown, tested and manufactured in Sisters, Oregon. Desert Green is a collective of farms on the eastern foothills of the Oregon Cascade range that grow and produce the highest quality full-spectrum CBD products currently on the market. Desert Green grows some of the finest genetics in the world using organic and biodynamic practices to provide the cleanest and most effective CBD. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, MANDELA, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio.
2: You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. Today we're talking with Joe Miedema from Brampton, Ontario, a rural setting. Joe is a bushcrafter and subsistence hunter. It's the art of surviving in the bush. Currently, we're in the middle of the trek to our put-in site for a river trip for the next few days, traveling through the middle Atlas Mountains. The scenery is stark but gorgeous. Crisp blue lake below us, two 3,000-meter hills and mountains above us, we're driving uphill in a bus with about 16 other people. My name is Michael. I'm just one of the guests on a trek for the next two weeks with this lovely group.
1: Hey, Mandela here. I'm sitting next to Michael in the back of the bus. We're heading to the river. I'm guiding these guys down a four-day expedition on the Alhansal River, and then they're going to make their way to the Sahara Desert. I'm so excited about their upcoming adventure. But right now we're on an audio adventure with Joe... Medima. And Joe, I have a couple of questions for you. You have a wealth of knowledge to share with us. And I was just wondering if you could share some of the knowledge of the land that you have soaked in over your time in the wilderness. You shared how fish make it into high alpine rivers.
0: There's a bunch of ways they can make it to high alpine rivers. Where we're from, fish get transferred actually on the legs of some birds when they're eggs. So they're the wading birds wade into the rivers and lakes in the areas where fish are spawning and fertilized fish eggs get stuck to their legs. Bird takes off, flies and lands in another lake somewhere and the eggs come off and there you go, there's mother nature transplanting fish kind of all over the continent. And you'd be amazed at fish species can spread 10 or 20 miles a year, every year. It can expand its range using that mode of transport. That's one thing that I've learned over the years. There's other ways that the fish get moved around too. Kind of the most awful way is when people do it because they end up putting species that are non-native. I spend basically every weekend and the whole fall and as much of the summer as I can outside in the bush. And, you know, other than I took a little bit of biology in high school, but you learn a ton just by being out there and most of all being quiet and still And watching and if you're gonna move move slowly and methodically like take an hour to move 50 meters like just do one step and wait five or ten minutes whatever and just go quiet and the best time actually is right after a rain because when the ground is wet it's quiet the leaves don't wrinkle the plants don't make noise the mud is soft everything is quiet when it's wet So I love going out. Actually even during rain. You know, you'd be amazed at how much the animals move around in the rain. Like in storms. Like biggest deer I ever saw in my life, and I watched him for twenty five minutes sitting twenty five feet up a tree with my bow and I just could not get a shot. He just never came out into the open, so I never got a shot at him. But he was close. He was like fifteen yards from me for about half an hour. I just didn't have a clear shot at him, so I just got the pleasure of watching him, which is sometimes as good or better than actually scoring on the hunt. You just watch and you learn. This was during Hurricane Sandy that hit the east coast of the United States that flooded New York City so badly. So in Ontario, we didn't get it as bad as New York, but it was still a pretty substantial storm. Like, it was maybe 40-mile-hour winds and horizontal rain, and I was just, you know, ah, that's a good day to go up a tree and watch some deer. You'd just be amazed. These animals actually sometimes they feel safer in weather like that like that's one thing I've learned is bad weather doesn't you know extremely terrible weather they're gonna bunker down but a lot of times I see more animal in marginal weather than I do in nice weather like the animals feel safer sometimes and they feel safer in different settings so like when it's crazy windy you know what the animals will actually come out into the open more instead of staying in the bush sometimes because because of the crazy wind they can't hear anything and the animals have the same sense as we do in general most of them they rely mostly on their nose but when it's crazy windy and the wind is doing all kinds of nutso things they can't rely on their noses properly Storms also make a lot of noise. They can't rely on their ears anymore either because there's just too much noise from the storm. All they got left is their eyes. And if they're in thick cover, they can't see anything. So they'll come out of the thick cover and they'll hang out in the open in a bad storm because, like, I'm a predator and they're prey, and when they're in the open, they can see far and they can see everything coming, right? And I'm not the only predator in the woods. There's, there's bears and wolves and coyotes, and, you know, the deer is kind of on the menu for all of us you learn what kind of weather actually to hunt in and it's usually it's bad weather is good hunting is what I've learned bad weather works better than good weather much as it's really nice to be out in the good weather when you're out in the good weather I don't tend to see a lot of big game I see lots of small little critters and stuff and you'll see some incredible things like like I've seen coyote chasing a buck deer I've seen the buck spin around and take them on you know, and I've watched it play out in real time, right in front of my eyes. And I just wish I had a video camera or something. i got to take a video camera with me some of these times because you, you see things like that. I had another time where, you know, you hear about bucks in the rut and how they'll fight each other. Well, I had a, a six-point buck come in. I mentioned before how I screwed a shot up one time. This one other time, I let the arrow fly, and as it released from the bow... One of the fletchings tore off the shaft. There's three fletchings on the back of the arrow shaft. They give the arrow spin and stabilize it in flight. And so I lost a fletching. And depending on the bow, if you're not hunting a super fast bow, you can actually watch the arrow after you let it go. Like, you can see its flight path. I was watching this arrow do a cockeyed corkscrew through the air as it was flying towards the deer. It's like, this isn't good. So it hit the deer and it missed the mark by about 10 inches from where I was aiming. But luck was on my side again, just like the other time. It actually broke both the deer's shoulders. Which, when you break both shoulders on an animal like that, it goes down and it it can no longer walk. So it can't get away. It only has its rear legs. But what I didn't notice was there was a bigger, more dominant buck that was coming in to actually attack the buck that I just hit. And he still decided to. So I let the arrow go and I was getting ready to go down there and deal with this wounded deer like you know, put it out of its misery as fast as I could and, you know, celebrate the successful hunt. Except between me coming down out of the tree and walking 20 yards, a big 10-point buck came in and charged my deer, attacked it, picked it up broadside on its antlers, and chucked it. And so I had to deal with this other randy buck. I mean, I can't hunt him because I only had one tag, but I had to somehow scare him off away from my deer. I sound possessive. It's not really my deer, but... whatever it's my deer so (laughs) I had to chase this 10 point buck off my deer and like that's just like something you just you and you just can't believe like these animals that are so timid normally like even a 10 point buck is a very timid skittish animal and will bolt from anything and they're on alert all the time because everything's trying to kill them including me right but when they're rutting and they think that somebody's coming in on their territory they get pretty pissed off but I managed to chase this guy off, managed to scare him off. I had another incident like that, 35 years of bow hunting, the only time ever in my life. And I've seen thousands of deer in the wild, like in the bush. Last bow season alone, I probably put eyes on a 100 different deer through the course of the season that I watched. And most of my hunting is just watching and observing and learning their patterns. How they live, how they eat, how they sleep, how they mate, everything. The more you know, the the more successful you become. Because you can predict, given the conditions, where they're going to be, right? So, but this... I was coming out in the dark. I'd, I'd hunted most times you don't see anything when you do see anything nine times out of ten the animal busts you when i say it busts you he or she detects you the hunter long before you ever have a shot at the animal and they white-tail deer especially i'm talking white tail here and, and all big game but white tail more than any other animal have a really crazy unique snort whistle they do out their nose and actually so nine times out of ten you get busted And actually six out of those ten times, you don't even see the animal that busted you. You just hear the snort whistle and hear the running away. And it's like, okay, pack it up. Game's over. Time to go. Not always time to go home, but sometimes. But this time I've been busted like four times that day already. It was dark. I was coming out of the bush. And I don't know if this was like a senior citizen deer or what. Okay, so I'm walking out. And normally... Unless there's another buck or an actual doe involved that the buck is protecting, you would never ever scare, you just, the deer run away, they don't come at you. But I'm walking out and my it's dark, so legally we have to have our bow uncocked and cased and the arrows put away. So that's, yeah, it's all, the bow's cased, the arrows are put away. I'm just walking, you know, carrying my bow case and something pops out on the trail in front of me about 30 yards turns and looks at me and it's a this was moonlight and there's snow on the ground so you can see pretty well even though it's dark you have pretty good sight lines this deer looks at me and i'm looking at it and i'm just like wow you're a beautiful animal nice monster big 12 point buck it puts its head down and charges and i was just in shock i've never been charged by a deer like that before but I, yeah i learned that day how to dive because he would have run me through you know local hunter gets killed by a deer would have been kind of ironic but those are just things you learn Hi this is Michael we're on a bus we're talking to Joe Miedema
2: and uh, we're in the Atlas Mountains Trail Less Traveled is the show I have a question for Joe so Joe when this buck charged you and you say you jumped out of the way does it only happen once and the buck doesn't recharge
0: no it only happened the once and I think like I said I think he thought I was another buck and I think he was, must have been an older animal with failing eyesight, and that's why he charged me. And as soon as he, he charged me and blew past, and then he gave up.
1: I'm going to ask that Joe, the guest, and Michael next to me look out the front window, because we are on the trail less traveled right now. And scenic alert, everybody. Scenic alert. Uh, We're on a bus in the Middle Atlas Mountains in Morocco. We have been climbing the mountains, and now we just came over the pass, and looking out the window, we can see uh, nomadic sheep and goat herders, and we're looking at the most amazing snow-capped peaks, some of the tallest mountains in this part of Africa. I'm going to hand the microphone back over to Joe, just to do your best, Joe, if you don't mind, to paint the picture... Of what you see when you look out the window of the van right now, and then we'll play a song.
0: Well, if I look out the window right now, it reminds me a little bit of New Mexico. But it's even a touch greener than New Mexico. Not quite as scorched, but I think that's maybe because of the time of year. There's a little bit of standing water here and there. Lots of relief. There's snow-capped mountains in the back that are forested up to the tree line it's rocky but it's it's highly weathered like if i'm gonna guess it looks like sedimentary shale but i'm not positive could be sandstone i'd have to get closer but it's certainly sedimentary rock around here so and it's very highly weathered and it's a beautiful blue sky that is just contrasting that white snow really nicely and we're kind of cruising downhill through a pretty jumbled scene right now on the left and the right looks like there's some irrigation pipe there for the critters that are running around here that they're hurting but that's kind of my take mike what do you think
2: yeah i'd like to add simply joe that what i'm seeing is uh like i said earlier stark landscape rocky shrubbery you don't see any large pines or trees really some in the distance but really open arid landscape immediate vicinity sort of a undulating hill-like Smaller mountains, and then in the distance, maybe 10, 15, 20 miles ahead, you see the larger three, 4,000-foot peaks, completely covered in snow, but very, very stark, rocky faces. Not a lot of trees. If they are trees, they're very stumped and short.
1: And you're on the trail less traveled, being recorded in a bus in the Middle Atlas Mountains of the Kingdom of Morocco. Joe, it's time for a song. We've been talking about hunting. Can you share a song with us that reminds you of your time hunting in
0: the wilderness? Hunting in the... Okay, okay. well, this, this one, I don't even know if you're going to be able to find this one. Do the Bearcat. All right, I don't know. Do you know that song by David Wilcox? Okay, you'll be able to find it. Do the Bearcat by David Wilcox.
2: Hello again, you're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. Today we are in the good fortune of listening to Joe Miedema from Brampton, Ontario. He's a bushcrafter and subsistence hunter. The art of surviving in the bush. Right now we're in the middle of the Atlas Mountains, mid-range, stark, desert-like, 8,000 foot peaks, shrubs, rocks, not a lot of trees, Gorgeous snow capped mountains in the not too distant skyline. Gorgeous blue sky, no clouds. Cool and dry, lovely day. My name's Michael. I'm traveling for the next couple of weeks with this lovely group, and we're going to listen to Joe tell his story.
1: Awesome. Mandela here, sitting in the aisle of this 17 passenger van that is towing a trailer full of gear. And we're being followed by two 4x4 vehicles that are going to be put to good use once we get to the river. Uh, The last time I came down here, one of the trucks got stuck, but it was fine. Stuck for just a moment. As we say in Africa, TIA, this is Africa. Joe, I have a question for you. I would love it if you could take us through how we might survive. Should. (laughs) Okay, sorry, I shouldn't laugh how we might survive, should we find ourselves in the wilderness?
0: Well, it's a little bit cliche, but the number one thing is planning. So if you're going to be somewhere where survival could possibly be an issue, plan for it. Uh, now, we'll get in a few specifics. So, uh, you know, I've been in some bad places in bad weather. So if you're in a northern setting where it's cold, for instance, the three most important things are food water shelter and out of those three in cold weather shelter is the most important okay so stay put in general until you are either rescued or the bad weather passes and you need a shelter so you need to know how to build a shelter or you need to have material with you to throw up an emergency shelter and kind of included in shelter i include fire as kind of a subset of shelter because it it, shelter implies protection from the weather and if it's cold you need a fire so you you want to build your fire against a natural sort of break that's going to reflect the heat back to you into your shelter probably not building the fire inside your shelter but as cheesy as it sounds a tarp and some paracord are two really simple easy things to put in a day pack like an 8 by 10 sheet of plastic and a 100 foot piece of paracord and with 100 feet of paracord and a tarp and if you have a machete or a small hatchet as well you can build a structure pretty darn quickly. Maybe not going to withstand a crazy snow load but if you build it You know, something you can learn from the different animals that live in the woods is in a storm, in a bad snowstorm, they're going to head down to the river bottoms and they're going to hang out under the hemlock and the cedars because the hemlock and the cedar canopy will actually hold 80% of the snow that falls from the sky. Only 20% of it's going to get to the ground. And that canopy will actually be interlaced and will actually hold heat. It'll be 10 degrees warmer in a cold snap down in that river bottom. Then even just a quarter mile away up the hill, it'll be 10 degrees colder. So you're gonna look for places like that, or hopefully you're in a place like that. So that's kind of my first piece of advice is planning, and shelter is the most important in cold weather. Food and water, hopefully you're not gonna be out there long enough, that's gonna be an issue. But if it is, water's next on the list, more important than food. You can go a lot longer without food than you can water food is ultimately last on the list but hopefully you're rescued by then and it's not an issue but i always like to bring some dried meat like in the form of jerky it doesn't take up much room and it's pretty protein dense and it's normally got some salt in it that'll help with your hydration issues as well and this isn't actually the greatest thing in terms of weight but i I always bring like two or three pounds of peanuts because peanuts are like super calorie rich and I love them. So I always have like two or three pounds of peanuts in my bag and I figure I can survive like three or four days on that easy. So uh, it's kind of like peanut butter is power food. I'm do just not as much a fan of peanut butter. Peanut butter would work too. Put a jar of peanut butter in your bag. That's power food. Uh, And chocolate. Chocolate's always good to have too. More good power food if you're going to survive. Um... So planning for those conditions is my first piece of advice. And probably as important as planning is don't panic. Like, just keep your head on. Like, sit down and think. Like, don't run around. Just, like, I've had it before out hunting where I'm in an area that's subject to lake effect squalls. And just out of the blue, like, you'll go from perfectly clear blue day to all of a sudden it's 40 mile an hour winds and horizontal snow and you can hardly see the hand in front of your face you don't even have to be that far in the bush and it's like you cannot find your way out and it's just like you know what I guess I'm here for the night because I'm going to wander around and freeze to death if I don't throw something up so don't panic keep your head on and just think about the situation another thing is this is my last piece of advice is pay attention to your surroundings and note anything out of the ordinary and note some of the ordinary things like what way was the wind blowing last time you checked like if you have a compass or a GPS say the batteries die on your GPS and you forgot your compass but while you had directional knowledge you noted the direction of the wind that's a good thing to know because I've had it before Forgot my GPS, forgot my compass. I'm not perfect. But just I was just out scouting, and I was out by boat, by canoe. And, you know, I was landing the canoe here and there and hopping out and scouting for bear sign. It was an overcast day, so you couldn't see the sun. I did not have a timepiece. So, like, here, okay, I've, I've screwed up my ver- very first piece of advice where I said, you know, do your planning. Yeah, I didn't plan very well. It was a bit of a spur-of-the-moment thing, which usually that, that's when you can get into trouble. So I didn't have a compass, didn't have a GPS, it was overcast day, didn't have any way to tell the time, couldn't see the sun, and I got turned around. Like, I was maybe only 300 yards from the water body I'd landed on, but the bush was thick. I got turned around, and all of a sudden it's like, I don't know where the hell I am, and I can't even find the bloody lake anymore. And it's like, okay, well, I'll just sit down, and I'm just going to think until I figure this out, because otherwise I'm stuck here, and I'm going to you know my wife's gonna have to call in rescue because I don't have any cell service or anything so I sat and it took me about 20 minutes to remember you know what I made a mental note of the direction the wind was blowing in so that was about an hour ago and if I assume the direction of the wind hasn't changed then I know this way is north and I know the lake is south so I've now got my bearing and sure enough I found the lake again I didn't come out right where my canoe was landed but it was just then a matter of moving up and down the shore till I found where I'd beach the canoe. So if you just keep your head on and plan and pay attention to your surroundings, make mental notes of things that look unique, things like the wind. I mean, it's always good if you know the time of day because if you, if you know what time of day it is and the sun's out, you can always get your bearings. Or same thing if the moon's out. Know when the moonrise and moonset is. If you know when moonrise and moonset is you can get a good idea of time of day in the dark and direction as well even in the dark if you can't see the north star a lot of times you can see the moon but you can't see the stars if it's totally overcast you can't see anything or if it's a new moon you can't see anything but pay attention to the stars in the northern hemisphere like we're really blessed we got the north star it's a little more complicated in the southern hemisphere but in the north it's pretty easy if you don't know where the north star is you're you're pretty lacking in your bush knowledge. Those are just some of my really simple things. You get stranded in the bush even for two or three days. If you're prepared for it, it's not a big deal. Even if it's wintertime, even if it's minus 40. Like, minus 40, you don't have a lot of margin for error. You make a mistake at minus 40, you're going to die. But you can plan for that. Just saying, just saying. (laughs) At minus 40, there's not a lot of margin for error. You get wet or you screw something up, it doesn't take much. But... I generally don't try to go out in that weather, but I do. Like, my son and I went out ice fishing in minus 40 this year, and you just plan for it. It's okay. You just make sure you got the gear, and make sure you got the knowledge, and make sure you know how to use the gear and the knowledge to keep yourself alive, right? That's all you got to do. Beautiful. We're speaking with Joe Madima, and...
1: It's been an amazing journey in this van as it crawls across the Middle Atlas Mountains of Morocco on our way to a remote put-in on the Alhansel River. So, yes, we've been recording in the van. You can probably hear the uh, sound of people chattering around us and the gear as it rattles around. That was the sound of some children waving us down, and we often pass a whole herd of goats or sheep. And now we're actually coming into the remote village of Tiliguit, And this is actually a town that we're going to float past the late afternoon of day one on the river. Joe, my last question for you is, what can this generation learn from spending isolation
0: in the wilderness? Well, you can learn a lot. One thing you can learn is patience, which is a very valuable trait to have, no matter where you are, what you do, and how you do it. Some stuff does happen quickly, but you sometimes got to wait for days or hours for it to happen. And then all of a sudden, you got like 10 seconds to figure it all out. Everything happens it unfolds in 10 seconds. But patience, you can learn patience. You can just... And you can learn quietness. That's like, as a society in the West, we've lost the ability to be quiet and to just enjoy the solitude and silence and what it can do for your soul you know it's it's incredible actually how interesting it is to sit 25 feet up a tree even even if you're not hunting and just you get out there before sunrise and you watch you watch the bush come to life as it wakes up in that 1 hour before sunrise to kind of 1 hour after Nobody knows you're there, well maybe somebody does, but most of them don't know you're there. The, the animals, they just go about their business and you get to watch it and it it it's as good as any movie I've ever I I love it. I love just sitting there watching and it's like, "Hey, look at that. Look what that grouse is putting in his crop." It's like, "I don't think he knows he's not going to be able to eat that later today, you know, because it's it's a rock that he thinks is a piece of food or something." The silence is golden and you can learn if you are an actual subsistence hunter or a hunter who eats their their kill hopefully you can learn all about where your food comes from like our world has so lost touch with where food actually comes from you know and as a society predominantly we're fed by farmers I'm a bit of an exception to that we're still fed by farmers but we get most of our meat from the bush you take an animal and you now got to field dress it and skin it and butcher it, and uh, dispose of the carcass in a way that doesn't create problems for scavengers that you don't want to attract. You got to uh, even the organs. You know the the organs make great treats for the dogs, and actually some of the organs are quite edible, even depending on the animal. So you can learn about how we put food on the table when you go to the supermarket the stuff doesn't grow in cellophane packages you know it didn't start out that way it was a living breathing walking animal at some point and you, you can understand yourself a lot better when you do all this stuff but where, who you are and where you come from absolutely beautiful
1: We have been on the Trail Less Travelled with Joe Madima. He is originally from Brampton, Ontario, and he currently lives in a rural setting in Canada. Joe is a bushcrafter and subsistence hunter. Bushcrafting is the art of surviving in the bush. Joe, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time and your energy joining me here today on the Trail Less Travelled.
0: You're welcome. One last thing, always have a good knife.
1: That's actually my next question is, I always end the show with three bits of advice. Now, I'm sure you have more than three, but could you potentially share with us at least three bits of advice?
0: Always have a good knife. Always have a compass because I don't trust GPS. Anything that's electronic is going to fail, fail, fail. Batteries are going to go dead. It's going to get wet, something, whatever. So compass, a knife, and some way to start a fire. Those those three things will get you out of 90% of your jams Joe what song would you like to end your show with okay so I, I think uh, it, it's not totally related to bush actually it's not related to bushcrafting at all but I just like the name I like the title and I love the song so the river by Springsteen
1: Assalamu salamu Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, The Trail 103.3's locally harvested adventure radio series, which airs every Sunday evening at 6. The podcast is free, available wherever you gather podcasts, and the official website with show archive and photographs is traillesstraveled.net. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Joe Madima. Joe's interview was recorded over a period of 10 hours in a bus while driving the treacherous roads on the way to the Ahansal River in the Middle Atlas Mountains of Morocco. Joe is a bushcrafter and subsistence hunter from a rural setting in Ontario, Canada. The intention of the trail thus traveled is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment – storytelling – to provide adventure information and inspiration together stories and sounds from the most remote locations around the world if you know of someone that you would like to interview for the trail less traveled please contact me at traillesstraveled.net. i would love to get you in the studio with someone that you would like to interview my adventure tip this week is to insulate your tent by reducing ambient space buddy up put your partner's sleeping pad close to yours Think like a pack rat. Place your stuff sacks and extra gear around the tent's outside perimeter. And if you're trying to survive an extreme cold, you can create a radiant barrier by duct-taping a space blanket onto your tent ceiling to help with excessive condensation inside your tent. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, please do something for Mother Earth and get outside. Shred the nar, because as you know, The Gnar does not shred itself.